2: Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Jyoti Patel about her contemporary novel, The Things That We Lost. Jyoti was born in Paris to British Indian parents and grew up in Northwest London. She is a graduate of UEA's Prose Fiction MA and winner of the 2021 Murky Books New Writer's Prize. In this episode, we talk about Jotty's murky book surprise win and how that led to publication. The importance of taking yourself seriously as a writer and how small tweaks to dialogue and using slang gave authenticity to her teenage protagonist. But first, here's Jotty with an excerpt from The Things That We Lost.
3: Avni stares across the River Ganga, trying her best to put what she's seeing into words. Water, sky, trees, locals. Tourists, bells, orange, green, blue. This is something she has always struggled with, trying to summon words when she feels overwhelmed. Years ago, when her husband died, she told her father that she couldn't find the right words simply because there were too many languages in her head. Gujarati, a pinch of Swahili from her parents' time in Kenya, some French from school, English, of course. When she's drained, the words from each language blend together, When distracted, she becomes very literal, referring to the sky as upstairs or the tyres on her car as simply feet. When nervous, the words jump and skip over each other, and she can't immediately tell which language they belong to. She told her father how, when she was 16, she kept saying Dio instead of "we" during a French oral exam. The languages, she told her father, they mix and blend. It must be because they think in feelings, not words. But that was only part of the truth. The other part is that what happened to her words when her husband died wasn't at all the same as when she had exam nerves, nor was it the same as thinking about the skies upstairs or wheels feet. The silent truth was that she was paralysed by what had happened, frozen. The guilt she felt slammed shut her right to communicate with others, like a hot, angry gale. The words didn't fall between the gaps of one language and another, They simply
2: disappeared. Hi Jotty, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Things That We Lost.
3: Hey Chloe, so nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: So can you start by telling us what The Things That We Lost is about?
3: Sure. So The Things That We Lost was published just recently by Murky Books, which is an imprint of Penguin. Um, And it's a story set in northwest London predominantly. It follows um, two characters, mother and son, Avni, who's the mother. She's about 45 when we meet her. And then Nick, the son, who's about 18. He's about to leave London for university. And the story is really about their relationship and the relationship between them and the different people in their families. And really it's about Nick's story. Um, He's trying to uncover the secrets surrounding who his father was and the secrets within his family story. So, when Avni's mother is pregnant with Nick and tragically her husband dies while she's pregnant. So her son Nick is born and never knows his dad. And she holds on to like the secrets of who he was and their life together really quite close to her. Um, So yeah, it's their story of mother and son. It's it's a story about belonging, love, friendships, family, identity, diaspora. Um, And yeah, like I say, it was published by Murky Books and an extract of it won the Murky Books New Writers' Prize in 2021. So it's taken almost two years to bring it to bookshelves.
2: Well, I will talk about your, we'll talk about your competition win later on. But first of all, I kind of want to hear about the genesis of the novel and where it all began for you. Can you remember kind of that moment of early inspiration? What was it?
3: Yeah. So that's yeah. I love talking about that because it feels like it was like it's so nice looking back and thinking I was having all those feelings and thinking about writing this, and now it's actually a real book. So it's nice to go back to that time in my own head. So. Yeah, I started writing it in like the summer of 2018 um, and I'd always wanted to be an author, um, but after my undergraduate degree, which was in literature, I like basically just decided that it wasn't going to be something that I did. And I threw myself into a career in marketing um, and then I sort of gave up on writing and the idea of being a writer in any way. And then in the summer of 2018, I don't know what happened. I hadn't written for like four years, but this idea just came to me and I started writing down a conversation between Nick and his grandfather, Rohan, who's a big part of the novel too. Um, And within three months, I had a very messy um, draft of a novel, which was so unexpected. Um, I sat on it for a little while. Then I went and did a master's in creative writing at the University of East Anglia, which was absolutely transformative for me as a writer for this book and also for me as a person. Um, And... I yeah spent like a year on that course um the novel really changed when I was on that course because that first messy draft was all told between just from Nick's perspective all in the past tense very quickly um when I got onto that course I realized within a couple of weeks we need the mother Avni's perspective for this book to work we need her for the tension for the dramatic irony for the backstory of her love story with her husband Elliot. Um, without her the novel from Nick's perspective you know it's very different and she almost looks like a bit of a villain (laughs) without her perspective Um, so I did that masters and I think like a week after I got my results or the same week I got my results I saw the murky book's new writer's prize and I wasn't in a position to start approaching agents the book was basically still quite messy the second draft was only about 20-30,000 words I was in the process of rewriting it the murky books and writers prize was I think like the third thing I'd applied to I'd applied to like two other little schemes and I applied for the murky books and writers prize and I won and by the time I won I had a full second draft finished so yeah and then that was two years ago And the last two years I've been in the process of editing it picking the cover you know doing all the publicity and now it's finally on bookshelf so it's a real like it's a real whirlwind story of how it came to be
2: just before we started recording I said that I'd been in a couple of bookshops at the weekend and seeing it pride of place on tables everywhere um, so it's definitely made its mark now in the world we can you know that your journey is as well not complete because obviously you've got to see how readers feel now but it's so exciting to see that after all these years of working on something it's actually a real physical book now that people can pick up and buy.
3: Absolutely. And like I said, when we started talking, like going back to that mind frame of like when I was sitting on my mom's sofa in 2018, writing this conversation out, I was just so happy that I'd greeted the writer in myself again. And that inspiration and the the ability even to write creatively had come back to me. So the fact that all of this has happened and the book is actually on shelves just is just like so special to me.
2: So let's talk about the book a bit more then. So I want to start with Nick because he's such a vital part of this novel and I guess maybe it's slightly surprising that you chose to, wrote, to write from a perspective of a, a teenage lad really, like basically embarking on adulthood. We meet him just as he's about to go off to university and there's a lot of kind of slang and chat with his mates and um, I wondered what it was like for you trying to find his voice i mean you said that his conversation with his grandfather was one of the first things that came to you so did this voice just emerge somewhere from you or did you have to work to make it authentic teenage voice
3: and um, that's a great question i definitely have to say i would say that he as a character came to me but his voice definitely took a lot of work and it was actually when I was on the masters at UEA I'd be working the book for like what a year and a half at that point on and off like I worked full time and it was just like a fun thing that I do a couple of evenings a week or whatever um I had a one of my peers on the course who's Daniel Wells who actually wrote a brilliant book called Mercy's Take he was in my workshop group at UEA and he like just crossed out one of the no's like in Nick's speech Nick said no and he crossed it out and he just changed it to nah <laughs> and that literally unlocked the whole of Nick's voice in me so wow. that was excellent at like vernacular and dialogue and it was just that small change that for me then totally unlocked the voice you were talking about and I was like oh that's who he is he's someone who says no nah and not no mm. and it literally the whole voice of like how me and my mates speak when we're back home in northwest London like the code switching that we do between talking to each other like that and then talking you know the way that we do when we're in job interviews or the way i'm speaking to you now you know like that code switching was something that i myself like i felt disingenuous doing that and i think the other issue as well that i was finding was that i'd never picked up a book or if i had there were very few and far between where i saw that northwest London slang was allowed to exist in western literature or like in any book really um, and it's the same as what I do with the Gadrati in the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little while. But the reason why why his voice came so late to me was because I just hadn't grown up reading characters like him, and I hadn't grown up reading books where dialogue like his and his mates was allowed to exist on the page. Um, so yeah, like that's that's why earlier I said like that course was transformative to me. There were so many moments on that course where I was in such a creative environment and something would just slowly be unlocked and like. I would just be able to greet this whole other part of a character that I just was waiting to sort of find um so yeah and also like I think it was really fun for me to write from the perspective of an 18 year old lad who's like wants to hang out with his mates and you know wants to drive around and he's, he's confused about which girl he fancies like it was really nice because this book talks about such heavy themes and like other sections are quite literary and like beautiful and quite dense in a way like there's lots of long pieces of prose so it was so nice for me to balance that and like flex a different muscle when I'm writing through Nick's perspective and I think it also makes it enjoyable for the reader because whether you like more commercial quick reads where you write like like the more sort of beautiful literary fiction like this book sort of touches on both in a way so it engages both kinds of readers.
2: Yeah absolutely and I think one of the things as well which makes the book one you really always want to go back to is this unravelling mystery of what happened to Nick's father Elliot because Avani doesn't say because it's so painful and she doesn't want Nick to know and keeps her cards very close to her chest and of course for Nick this is a huge part of his identity that is kept from him and he does so much to try and eke out the secrets of his past so I wondered from a kind of practical writing point of view, how are you approached that element of secrecy and mystery? Because I guess it's difficult to determine how much you want to give away at the beginning or how much you kind of want to drip, th- feed it throughout. Was that another thing that kind of came out of your course?
3: Yeah, it was something that I think, like, the course really helped me to think about, like, the theory and practice of, like, how to actually put together a story that works technically, and this, like, and one of my professors, Giles Foden, always talk about the slow and measured reveal of secrets, and that was something that I was really conscious about throughout the book, was at what point do we need to give the reader just enough information to keep them reading, and there are moments where there's lots of things reveals, and there are moments, like, the beginning, which is quite slow, and, like, meditative and it's sort of the pace there reflects like the grief that Nick and Avni are feeling in the wake of the grandfather's passing Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was really interesting me to play with the pace and like the moments where I do choose to reveal secrets to the reader and part of like the thing that we were just speaking about about having Avni's perspective too for me was that you know, the reader in a way gets access to lots of moments of Avni's past and like secrets are hidden within her chapters that if you read closely, like you you could basically figure out what happened to Elliot if you read really closely because it's hidden like in her chapters, like little clues and stuff. And even if you don't pick up on that and you read it quickly and you just enjoy it, like having her perspective adds so much more to the story and the reader is allowed to see her backstory with Elliot and have all of these secrets and all of this information that Nick doesn't know either. So there's a layering there of like, who knows what when, which was really mm. fun for me as, as a writer to sort of craft and to put together.
2: I imagine that was something that when it came to the editing, maybe gave you a bit more of a headache.
3: It did. And you know what, like something <laughs> that I really struggled with in this novel was plot, because I started writing it not knowing I was writing a novel. I was just writing in this dialogue between these characters and I was interrogating things from my own life that I wanted to explore through writing because that's what writers do isn't it like you know and I didn't realize it was going to be a novel so then when I realized it was becoming a novel and specifically when I got onto the course at UEA and I started taking this dream quite seriously I then had to take a back step and think god this is quite messy like how am I going to untangle the novel and I couldn't see past the second third of it either so I had to then go back and create a crazy Excel spreadsheet and like <laughs> try and create a plot and say how are we going to untangle this last third. And at that point, I was doing it totally on my own. It was like before I won the murky Prize, and um, and yeah, like I just think like the plot aspect for me, is something that going ahead into my next novel, I'm so much more conscious of because I know it was something that I. I struggled with them. It's what took the novel so long to be finished the first time round. So it's a lesson that I've learned is with the next one, like, have a think about what's going to happen in the book because this first one is so character driven. So they just led me wherever they wanted me to go, and sometimes it was a dead end.
2: And you saying that the kind of novel started with that this conversation between grandson and grandfather. When I think back to that beginning of the novel. The novel, the story of the their lives, is encapsulated in their conversation. So, was that something that didn't really change? The kind of that initial conversation essentially was the same in the finished book.
3: Yeah. So the the is very similar to what was in the finished book. There are a few chapters that were quite unchanged, and the first conversation was one of them. In that, like the nuances and the subtleties, I think. Were, were tweaked and tightened but the conversation was very much a moment between a grandson and a grandfather where the grandfather basically knows he's about to die and is thinking how am I going to tell my grandson this secret and the grandson is thinking there are all these things that I don't know and I have a feeling that he's about to die and all this stuff might die with him because my mother will never speak to me and that really interested me That idea of like how family histories can die when someone dies Because again, like every person in a family will hold their own version of that family's history. Two siblings can go through the exact same event and have very different memories of what happened and they can process the experiences very differently. Um, And we're constantly rewriting our histories too. Like there's a scientific thing that says like every time you think of a memory, the next time you remember it is the thought of the last time you thought of it as opposed to the memory itself. Now, that's so interesting to me as a writer, like. Um, And so much of this story is about memories. If we think about like, there's a conversation near near the end between Chan and Avni, so Avni's brother and and, and Avni. Mm -hmm. And they've both remembered a very big moment in their past differently. Um, Avni's remembered it in the way that it's portrayed to the reader in the book and Chan's remembered it in a way that's been easiest for him to process because it's less painful for him to to remember it that way. Um, So yeah, like that beginning moment, that beginning scene between Nick and his grandfather it was the first chapter I wrote and it's still the first chapter in the book. And um, in a way you're absolutely right, like it encapsulates so much of the story Mm. in that first, it it introduces all the themes and yeah.
2: Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about Avni and uh, I read an interview with you where you said you were really keen. One of the things you really wanted to explore was this idea of um, identity in a post-Brexit Britain, but also looking at it, in the eighties and nineties, Britain, and what it's like to be a person of colour and and being both a Londoner, but also being someone uh from South Asia. Can you speak a little bit about how Nick and Ovni balance their kind of identity and their experiences? Because I mean Nick, I think I think I'm right in saying that the first time he's ever been to what you might call his homeland is when they're burying his father. And that's Absolutely. he doesn't have any kind of real connection there
3: that's it yeah so the first time nick goes to india is when they're cremated they're scattering the ashes mm-hmm. of his grandfather in the beginning of the novel and Avni's looking at her son in that moment and thinking god like the first time i went to india was when i was scattering my husband's ashes who wanted to be scattered in the river Ganga too and for both of them, mother and son even though their heritage is indian the first time they go to india is to perform this this hindu ritual which is which is scattering um, the ashes of their, their loved ones in the River Ganga. For me, like, I was really interested as well to explore the identity piece between Avni, who is British Indian, um, her ethnicity is Indian, but she's British, and Nick, whose ethnicity is mixed. He's His mother is Indian and his dad is white British, but again, he's British, he's mm. grown up here. And I wanted to look at this idea of, like, where are we from? Where do we belong? And specifically there's an extra layer of nuance and complexity to this family because like my family like many Gujaratis in the UK our families came here by East Africa so my great-grandparents were born and raised in Kenya but uh, sorry my great my great-grandparents were born and raised in India but then they moved to Kenya with my grandparents um, when India got independence from England from Britain so my grandparents and my parents grew up in Kenya so when you meet them, you ask them where they're from, they'll say we're from Kenya, you know, because that's where they grew up, that's where their heart is, that's where their home is, that's where they were they were raised. But then there was mass immigration from Kenya with lots of Gujaratis moving to England and the rest of the West when Kenya got independence from the British. So there's this whole history and, and, and movement tied up with, like, you know, the British Raj and Empire and stuff. And because of that, you know, now I'm someone who's British but my heritage is Indian but my parents have a lot of identity tied up in Kenya too and I wanted to look at that and I wanted to look at that in fiction because I'd never seen that really in British fiction specifically not looking at the Gujaratis who are part of that diaspora who moved here to England from India via East Africa so lots of the novel looks at the way that Avni as someone who's grown up in Britain as as someone who is Indian, as someone whose parents were born and raised in Kenya, how she feels like she's allowed to perform those different parts of our identity. And in the eighties, you know, it was a hard time. Her parents moved to London the same year as, you know, Enoch Powell's rivers of blood speech, which is mm-hmm. the same year my dad moved to England. You know, there was a lot of, it was a difficult time with, with the national front, with all of everything that was going on the way that, you know, the mass immigration was being portrayed in the media. And then I was really interested because myself, as someone who is British Union too, I noticed a change in the way that people were speaking to me or people were speaking about people of color in the UK when the Brexit referendum happened. And I was interested in rooting the fictive present of the novel in 2017, 2018, just after the referendum, because for me, it was the moment where it felt like we'd, we'd suddenly been slung back And there were so many opinions and so many narratives that were suddenly validated, so many frankly racist mindsets that were validated. And I wanted to look at Nick growing up in 2017 Britain, he's an 18 year old, he's mixed race, compared to Avni growing up in 80s Britain, when all of these things were overt, there was so much overt racism in them. I wanted to contrast the overt racism then with the microaggressions and the subtle underlying racism that was simmering in 2017, 2018 and show these two characters growing up and ask, really, have we moved on at all?
2: Mm. One one part of his life when Nick really is confronted by that is when he goes to university, because he suddenly has someone that he lives with that is very different from the attitudes he is um, used to in London. And it's someone who... You know, makes comments and then later there is overt racism when he is car his car's keyed and yes. um, a slur's written in the side of his car, and yeah, I, I thought that the, your sort of choice of of placement of setting in terms of time was was great for showing how because your characters do confront brexit and kind of attitudes and things that are happening in the news and and not in a not in a kind of you wouldn't call it a kind of a brexit novel but you can tell the kind of influence of the way the world is moving around them which is that it does have its parallels to what um ovni is is experiencing in their 80s and 90s
3: absolutely yeah and like with the with next timeline i wanted to show like how those little microaggressions can what they can build up to Nick, like me, grew up in a very multicultural city and then moved to a rural town for university, which mm-hmm. is what I did too. And like him, I was suddenly so aware of the fact that I was brown. And I was so like confused about why when I would meet people, it would be the first thing they asked me about, or it would be the, the I'd be like Joti, the Indian one. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. but there's so much more to me, like what? And then that itself would make me trip up myself. And I'd be like, am I uncomfortable with the fact that they see that I'm Indian? But really, like I wanted to look at that feeling that I think so many people that I've spoken to and that I've heard in other podcasts and I've read articles about experiencing, it's like a universal experience of someone who's grown up in a very diverse city to then when they move for the first time, or they go on a weekend away, or they go to uni, or they visit friends in a rural town, the realization that the whole of the UK is not like the big cities. Mm. There are people who will look at you and there are people who will other you and sometimes that comes from a place of interest sometimes it comes from a place of discrimination but that sudden dissonance and like confusion about oh is this how I'm portrayed is this how the world sees me outside of big cities being othered I think um and having you know not felt that until you're 18 years old and all of a sudden you're like wow this is what the real world's like mm. so that's a big theme in the book too like again it's, it's a big theme but it's a quiet theme
2: yeah I was going to ask you about this writing about being 18 because you're on the cusp of adulthood and what what kind of attracted you to write a coming of age story when you're in between kind of life changes at that point because I think when Nick moves to university it's such a as someone who's been to uni it's such a relatable part of his life because that he really is so anxious about not just being away from familiar life but friends and family and he really kind of crawled into himself at times so was that another thing that attracted you to kind of writing the kind of coming of age story
3: it did definitely so i think like the the reason i wanted to pick a protagonist who was 18 was because i realized that that's the age where you're like literally you're literally still a teenager but you're about you're also an adult which mm-hmm. is like a juxtaposition in itself. Like you're an adult now, but you're also still a teen. And it's this weird where you've got one foot in your childhood and one foot in adulthood. And so much of the novel looks at the in-between moments of you're in between, you know, he's in between identity, he's British and he's in, he's in between being a boy and a man. He's in between in so many ways, like also this idea of he's inside of his family and he's beginning to see his family and the people in it as, people in in their own rights too and that interests me as a writer this idea of like when you're 18 or sometimes you know 17 18 19 you start looking at your parents and you think whoa like you've got a history and you've got a life and you've made decisions and you've done things that you've told me not to do and you start seeing your caregivers as like real life human beings with multifaceted personalities and histories and 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 that blows your mind a little bit where you're like whoa like you are a real person and you have your own life and your own history. And you were once my age and you once did the things I did that you tell me not to do. Like um, that, that interested me. Um, And you also touched on in your question, this idea of mental health, you know, he really struggles, bless his heart, with his mental health. And I hadn't read a lot of books where men were allowed to cry. Men were allowed to struggle with their mental health. Um, And it was important to me as well to interrogate the way that we as British, we in British culture look at male male mental health, and specifically also the way Gujarati culture, so these characters are from Gujarat in in India, and um, the way Gujaratis and really South Asians in general and Indians in general look at mental health. So for example, in Gujarati, there are no words for anxiety, depression, mental health. It is erased from our experience. So I wanted to look at what happens when you have a character who comes into a moment in his life where he's struggling with anxiety and panic attacks. But he historically, both parts of his cultural identity and the way he's been socialized and raised, do not allow him as a man to talk about these things. In Kudrati, he's not. there's not even words for these things. In British culture, men have historically been silenced and there's been such hardship for men with, when it comes to mental health. So I wanted to look at a character who's stuck between these two cultures and then how that plays out.
2: hmm honestly I've got so many more questions I could ask you about this novel but I want to ask you a bit more about your, your writing process and you've kind of hinted that you maybe are a little bit of a chaotic planner um yeah. so I wondered whether what is it what is your writing kind of routine like do you have a writing routine are you maybe you've changed now having written a book but do you kind of plan much do you plan your characters much and At what point do you do your research? Is that kind of ad hoc? You do it when you need it. What's your general kind of writing routine like?
3: So the process of writing this book for me was also the process of discovering my routine. So there was a lot of um, trial and error. I discovered, for example, I'm absolutely not someone who can write in the morning. I need to sort of live my day, wake up, have a lot of tea, have some conversations with people, do my thing, and then I'm warmed up to write. Um, so when I was writing this, and especially like in between getting long listed for the murky prize and then winning it, um, I had a conversation with an editor and she put a lot of faith in me and said to me, like, you're good, finish writing this. So the couple of months it took in between me being long listed and winning, I think it was like three months, every day after my full-time job, I would just sit for two hours. It was it was lockdown, so it was easy to, there were no distractions. So for two hours at the end of every day, between like 5:30 and 6:30 or or 6 and 8 and just write for two hours. On the weekends, I would roughly plan out what I was going to write. And I would write a thousand words a day, that is it. Sometimes it would be more, sometimes it would be a bit less. I'd pick up any sort of like, any, any, um, um, any, like if I hadn't hit those word counts, I'd pick that up on the weekends and I'd edit on the weekends. But I'm not someone who can write every single day and who... Who has like writing as part of like my my daily routine? I'm someone who, if I'm working on a project, I will dedicate myself and work really hard to get it done. So it was the same when I was editing the book; I would work long hours. I'd finish work at like sometimes six or seven, and then I'd have an hour off, and I'd work from eight till midnight on editing the mm-hmm. book, rewriting books, and then fall asleep for seven hours, wake up, do it all again. So I work in bursts, um, and like it's different. I had a short story published two years ago, and then another published last year. And for that, it was very much like I'd sit down, I would have plan, I would have an idea, I would write, and then it was the editing process where I would add structure, add all the you know, nice little bits that make it quite rightly and et cetera. But um, I'm very much someone who, like, I write when I have an idea in a project as opposed to just writing for the sake of writing. Um, hmm. And it seems to work for me, so I'm I'm carrying on with that. And <laughs> like I say, the first novel was... Very much, I was following the characters. They came to me first. Then I then I sort of went back and edited and fixed the plot. But with the second book, because I know I struggled so much with plot and it was such a stumbling block for me, I've perfectly plotted out what my next novel is going to be. I know who the characters are, and I'm very much now approaching the novel in a very linear way. Mm. Um, I just feel like it'll be easier because the first book was just yeah, it was quite quite a messy journey. It was not a straight road to the
2: end. <laughs> Your your kind of change sounds very similar to mine in that I decided that I would write myself a very detailed plan for my next book and I ended up with a 8,000 word plan uh, just so I had nothing to distract me from the plot because like you said my my plotting is not plotting is not my favorite part is your do, do you find the kind of blank page part the best bit or do you like the kind of going back and editing and making it beautiful and structurally sound or do you like absolutely hate that part
3: I'm absolutely the latter like I love going back and that for me is the fun bit where I feel like (laughs) I feel like a writer when I can put in the beautiful pieces of language and like I can think oh in the next chapter I know this is going to come so let me put in a little easter egg here or let me like this would be really nice to tie into like a metaphor I used previously when I was exploring the same theme. So let me like build on that here. That for me is the really fun bit that fills me with warmth and excitement. And I feel like I'm sparkling when I'm doing it. The the blank page thing is where I'm sitting there rubbing my head in my pajamas with a cold cup of coffee thinking, why am I doing this? I'm not a writer. Why do I think I can do this? And it's really like the end bit where you're editing that that it really starts to sparkle. And I think, yeah, this is good. This is what I'm meant to be doing. So yeah, what about you? Like, do you do you find joy in the, the beginning bit or?
2: No, I'm 100% the same as you. Yeah. I absolutely, I know uh, we we talk about this all the time that you're, you know, first draft's meant to be awful. It's fine That's it's terrible. You know, you can just word vomit on the page. It's absolutely allowed and it's what you should do. I hate every second of it because my brain is going, this is terrible. This is awful. You know, you're really going to have to salvage this. So I, I dread that part. I love it when I know I've written a really nice chapter and it's beautiful already. And then I, I can maybe go back and tweak a little bit and I go, yeah, I'm happy now. But that first bit where, let's say, chapter seven, I know is garbage. <laughs> I hate it.
3: I totally agree with you. And isn't it funny that like it's the same with me that some chapters I wrote in this, for example, chapter three, which is where Avni's staring out at the river Ganga, like that for me, I wrote it really early morning, which was unheard of for me, like we said. I don't write in the mornings. I woke up really early one morning. It was part of my dissertation when I was doing my masters. It was one of the only parts of the novel that really like survived from that first draft. And I just woke up early and I wrote it and it just came to me. And like I edited it a bit. And by the end of the day, I was like, whoa, like this is this is good like I think I found her voice and even now it's I submitted that to the murky prize you know Mm -hmm. a few months later and even now it's been very it's been edited very little from how that morning when I first wrote it and every time I went to write a chapter from Avni's perspective I'd go back to that chapter first to remind myself that I do I like I I, like the writing in her voice can be nice and it can be good but then there are other chapters like you're saying where You know, I think about that final conversation with Nick and Chan towards the end of the novel that, you know, I wrote that and I literally up until the moment I sent it to the publisher for printing was still tweaking it because I was like, this is so difficult for me to get Mm to the bottom of. And I really need to continue editing and editing and editing until I know it's good. So it's really interesting. Like there are some parts that just flow out of us and some that, you know, we really still have to work on and like continue returning to
2: I remember a friend gave me some really good advice that changed my perspective a little bit. And she said, the problem is you're reading your work knowing which chapters was like blood, sweat and tears. And you know the chapters you had to drag yourself to write and you had to sit there for four hours looking at the same 1,000 words. But when a reader picks up your book, they will not notice. And it was until she said that to me that I was like, do you know what that is so true and the only time i've really noticed that i don't see it anymore is when i was listening to the audiobook version of my book because it flows i can't see the the lines you know i can't see the the gaps where i was really struggling with a particular passage because the i mean the narrator of the audiobook is amazing but because it's performed and i'm not reading it on the page it's seamless
3: yeah I I totally agree with you and the audiobook of this was narrated by Nikesh Patel who's absolutely unbelievable amazing Mm. and also Nikki Patel who is also a great British Gujarati actor and it was so amazing for me to have three Patels I wrote it and they (laughs) they're both called Nikki and Nikesh and then there's Nick in the book and I was like this is just meant to be but um but but like coming back to what you're saying like the moment for me, as well, when I heard the audiobook, I, I, I was like, "Whoa, like this exists outside of me now because so long it's existed in my head or on my laptop. And hearing it, like you say, performed by professionals who actually like get the characters and who are bringing them to life in every way was so incredibly special for me. Like it was probably one of the most special parts of this whole process. Mm. listening to the audiobook, and they both just do such an incredible job, like, I I, yeah and I was like wow like this I think I'm an author now like having heard that back I was like yeah I think I think I can say I'm an author now because it felt like a real story and um like you say when I was listening to it back too I was surprised by some sections because I'd only ever heard them in my voice then mm. hearing them in the voice of the characters who the actors are playing I was like oh wow that's a really good part of the book I, I sort of always ignored that before um, so, yeah, it's a really magical moment. I'm sure anyone else who's an author listening to this will will be able to relate to how special it feels to, to hear the audiobook and to hear it exist outside of yourself for the first time.
2: Definitely. I think that is the hardest thing because we have to read as we have to read our own work as writers, editors and readers. And I think it's really hard. I wanted to touch back on your um, creative writing MA you did at UEA. And I think a lot of writers will have a point in their life where they make a kind of conscious decision to take their writing seriously and invest in it, whether it be time or money or courses or whatever it is. Um, is that uh, something that you recognise? I know you said you were kind of doing it for fun, but what, was it you kind of seeing potential in your your own work that kind of pushed you to the um, MA or was it was it something else?
3: So I'd, I'd done the undergraduate degree at Norwich, at, at you know, the University of East in Norwich too, which is where I did the master's. And my undergrad was in English and creative writing. And that's because I knew they had this really famous MA in creative mm-hmm. writing. And so many of my favorite writers had done it. So I'd done the undergrad, went off and did my, my career in marketing and was like, oh, I'm not going to write again. And then when this story came to me, it was my mom who was like, you've always said that one day you'd want to go back and do that master's. Now I thought it would be when I was in my 60s and I'd had a bunch of kids, a long career. And I was like, okay, let me try and be an author now. So it was something that I'd parked and I was like, didn't even think. about. And my mum said to me like, you know, why don't you you apply? And I thought, mum, there's no way. There is no way I'm going to get in. Like I haven't written in years. And I thought, you know what? Let me just apply and then I can put it to rest. And then she won't be nagging me and I won't be nagging me thinking maybe I should just do it. I applied and got in. And it was the moment that I got in that I actually started to think, this book might have legs because if it's good enough to get into that course mm-hmm. like because it was a bucket list dream of mine and it's, it's it was one of those things I always wanted to do and I remember I just like crying when I got the news of like that I was going to do it because it was the first time I applied and it was so much earlier than I thought I would go and do it and I by no means think that there are all, like every author or everyone who wants to write has to go and do some formal training like Absolutely by no means. But for me, it was absolutely transformational in the way I approach writing. And a lot of that was the fact that I, for my, for the first time in my life, I allowed myself to take my writing seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think psychologically that then meant that I was able to unlock a lot of like stuff within me and allow myself to actually take this seriously. And I do think like, there are so many things like, you know, there's that platform masterclass, like on there, there are some amazing master. Classes, master classes with like Margaret Atwood and like writers like that. There are free like YouTube like playlists you can watch, like from writers talking about their writing process. There are like things like the Faber course you could do or the Curtis Brown course. Like there are so many things people can do for free or for very little money that might just allow them to take themselves seriously as writers. It doesn't have to be a master's. It doesn't even have to be a course. It could be like reading a book, like Anne Lamott's got a great book called Bird by Bird, which also unblocked me as a writer when I was blocked. So it doesn't have to be a course, and I by no means that you have to do a course to be an author or to be a good author, but it was something that I would recommend in terms of like what it represents, which is taking yourself seriously, whether it's reading a book, signing up to masterclass, listening to podcasts like this. I think just being within that space and allowing yourself to exist in a creative way and giving that part of yourself time of day every writer should be doing in some way you know I think Mm -hmm. I just made that rhyme maybe the next book will be poetry Um, (laughs) but but yeah like it it was it was a great it was a great thing for me it really was
2: and you also get to spend time with other weirdos that take themselves super seriously when they're writing that is
3: the best part (laughs) like the mates I've made on that course are absolutely like and it was so nice as well because a few of us were, you know, we, we all graduated at the same time, and a few of us had debuts come out at the same time. So we could call each other up and be like, oh yeah, like is this normal? Or like, oh, like this is happening, or like, hey, at what point should this happen? And it was so nice, like, because writing is so lonely. It's just like you and the page. And especially someone like me, like I wrote the first half of the novel. No one knew I was doing it. It was such a private thing, and I was so shy about it. So to be able to share in that and to be able to for it to stop being lonely and it start being like something that you you have people that you can talk about and you can compare notes with. That was a big thing I got from that course, too. Like you say, like meeting other waiters who love to ride. like <laughs> huge for me. And now they're some of my best mates.
2: So let's talk a little bit more about the Merky Prize when I want to hear a bit more about the experience, kind of what made you apply and how it all happened, really, because. From this you went on to get your book deal um and you were thinking you were the second person ever to have won the prize so kind of how what was what was it like tell us about the experience
3: yeah so it was um I've touched on it a little bit already but it was it was very much like I applied I got my my results back from UEA and I wasn't ready to approach agents I had like a 20-30,000 word draft I went to UEA with a 50,000 word draft and it was totally ripped apart by myself because <laughs> I was like I need to be more conscious and deliberate and considerate about how I put the story together and I couldn't see my way through to the end of it so I thought right instead of applying for agents and stuff which I'm not ready to I need to apply for something that's going to give me a bit of a boost and make me feel a little bit validated and give me like a bit of a fire to finish writing this and I wanted to, to apply for like a scheme or something that would provide me with support from an editor and I knew that if I applied for the murky books prize I only had to submit like a chapter and I could have a conversation with an editor and they say like we give you the tools and the support to finish writing your book so it was more that rather than the book deal itself that I was attracted to um so yeah I applied and it was there was so much serendipity because like I say like by the time I won I would finished the draft and then you know I sat on it for like six months they were like just go and let it sit for a bit and then six months later we picked up started editing it um and that prize really opened up this whole world to me because it exists to create space in publishing for untold stories and for diverse voices and it's open to people aged 16 to 30 who are not yet published um and that again was one of the things when I was on the course at UEA like I was like I was one of the only people who'd like not been published and I was like I'm not a real writer but then like it was one of the things that allowed me to apply for this amazing thing that landed me with a book deal so it was one of those things that I would see as a failure in my life like oh everyone else on the course has had like short stories published I've never had anything published and then not having anything published actually meant I could apply to this so it was one of those really beautiful moments where I was like okay like this was how it was meant to be, you know, this was how it was meant to play out. Um, And yeah, like I won the Murky Prize, won the book deal. It took, it always takes a couple of years, I'm sure you know, between winning the, like, sorry, getting a book deal to the book coming out when you're a debut. Um, When you're a sort of more established author, it can be quicker, but that's generally the timeline. Um, And it was great working with the team because they were really supportive of like the decisions I wanted to make with this book. So for example, there's Gujarati in this book. And I didn't want to italicize the Gujarati. I didn't want to provide a glossary. I didn't want to provide translations. I wanted the little bits of Gujarati in this book to hold as much weight on the page as the English does. And I didn't want to other my own language and the language of these characters. Now, Mercury were really supportive with those decisions because they champion books that are trying to change the mainstream and, you know, do something different. And I don't know if I'd gone with another publisher if they'd have supported those decisions. So I was just so grateful to, that I won but also that I was able to to have this journey with them um, and I was ha- able to have this journey with such an important imprint that is doing so much work to bring books like this to British bookshelves.
2: Mm, absolutely and this is just a really kind of nerdy question but obviously this competition led to your book deal did you then have to kind of go off and find an agent did they support you in finding an agent what was that like?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. No one's ever asked me that before. (laughs)
2: It's just a very nerdy question. I have to ask it because I always think when you're starting out and you you kind of want a book deal and you want an agent and all that, there are probably like 600 different ways to get an agent and everyone has a different story. And I'm always interested in people's stories.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And. Um, like, like I say, like, well, like you say, normally you would find an agent and then they would help you get mm. a book deal. For me, it was the other way around. So I got the book deal. And that's why also we were like, let's take six months before we start editing it. Because let's like, like, you know, find an agent, blah, blah, blah. I think for the people, so the actual, the Mercury Prize, you're right. I'm the second, I was the second prize winner. But in the first prize, there were actually two winners. Right. So it, it ran two years before. It runs all sort of every couple of years. And there were two winners then, and then I was the third winner, but I won the second prize. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think the first time around, um, there was like a collaboration between murky and like an agency where they were like, oh, you you win the book deal and then you have an agent, here you go. But with me, they were like, yeah, like, you know, you could you can just sort of start approaching them and see, see what you think. Um, and yeah, like I went out to a bunch of agents and it was really interesting because like a lot of them, were really nice and supportive and, you know, were great. But a lot of them were basically like, we don't really know where this book would sit, or we've not really ever had a book like this before. Or, the premise is a little bit quiet. Now, those are all the reasons I won the murky Books Prize, because they wanted a book that hadn't been written before. They wanted a set of characters that traditionally publishers would be like, we don't know how to sell these because we've never mm. sold it before. And um, they want to do that, but a lot of agents weren't really getting that. And they were saying all these lovely things we're so full of regret we really want to sign you but I just don't know like how this is going to work and in the end I ended up with Holly Fawkes at Green and Heaton who was one of the first agents to offer me representation. I had a few offers by the end of like my rounds and from the first conversation I had with her I remember I called my dad up afterwards and he was like how did it go and I said I would be so happy to sign with her I was like she just gets it like mm. she just understood my characters everything I wanted to do you know I sent her my book um, like a, an early message I think it was the second draft that I was talking about and within two days she called me back and we had a 20 minute conversation and she engaged with the text in a way that I would hope someone would after they'd read it like eight times like she just got every subtle nuance and detail that I was trying to get across and I'm sure you've given this advice before in your podcast but like if, if there are any authors listening the one thing I would say is you know your publisher is like the editor at your publisher might change. You you might change publishers, but the one person who will stand by you the whole process is your agent. And it's so important to find someone who is on the same page as you. And especially for a debut, it can be really easy to be attracted to like the big name agents, but it's more important to be with someone who is going to champion you and answer your emails and pick up the calls, and not have loads of other big writers necessarily on their list. Like, and for me, like I went with Holly at Green and Heaton because she just got my characters, and I just thought she gets it and until that point I hadn't really spoken to any people who just got it um so yeah I won the prize in the book deal and then I went back and found an agent um, (laughs) which was like going backwards but it's been such a great process like with Merky, but also the whole team at Green and Heaton like I would highly recommend checking them out as an agency if anyone listening is looking for agents because they are just like the the absolute best of the best in my opinion they're incredible.
2: It sounds like you really lucked out there but I'm so shocked that despite winning the competition you were still having people saying we don't know how this would work we don't know where the book would fit that is oh, that is mad to me because I just think you won the competition like have the publishers like, the publishers yeah you have the book deal already oh, yeah. publishers are so behind you they're the ones that are going to be doing the marketing publicity like if they're behind you why wouldn't an agent feel that I just yeah. that's mad to me and it really upset me as well at the time. I
3: remember thinking, is the book that bad? That like, I have a book deal and they still don't want me. But really, I think what's, I have a lot of friends who are like in the industry and publishing booksellers, like work, work agencies mm-hmm. and stuff. A lot of them said to me at the time, they were like, JT, like, it's such a taste driven and sales driven industry. So like, an agent could absolutely love you. But if the person who they're working alongside in the agency, or if like, they, if their list is full and they just can't like they can't articulate exactly why they think this book is going to be great in every way. And they don't feel hundred percent about it. They feel 99% about it. They mm-hmm. won't offer you representation. And it was hard because like I did get a few offers in the end and I had a lot of agents who were like really complimentary and I could tell really did want the book, but just couldn't sign me because they, they just kept saying like, we don't know like where this would fit. And I was like, but that's why I won the murky books prize. <laughs> and that's why hopefully it'll resonate with people because mm-hmm you know it's not been done before like we've never seen characters from this background in you know in in British Brookshires and um so yeah it was really interesting and it was one of those moments where I did feel like oh god maybe maybe this whole thing is just like a, a fluke and maybe I'm not a good writer um but it's been nice obviously everything that's happened since winning the prize like getting on the Observer's top 10 list and like all the good feedback and you know all that you know I got shortlisted for the bristol short story prize last year had a short story published with them and all those little moments have really helped me build my self-confidence as a writer Um, and it's actually been really nice in the last couple of weeks since all this possibility has been going up because i've actually had a few emails from a few of the agents who rejected me saying (laughs) oh it's been so nice and i was like yeah thank you Have thank you for your good wishes (laughs) but that's helped as well because i was like okay like you know sometimes you get it wrong and that's okay Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: Finally, are you able to tell us about the next book and what you're working on at the moment?
3: Yeah, so this my goal for every year is to have a short story published. So I'm hoping at some point this year I'll write, write a short story and it'll be published somewhere. So that's one of my goals. My second is to hopefully finish writing the second book by the end of the year. I found a um, I'm really old school, so I have like um like um i don't know what the word is like real life planners. i don't like put things in my google calendar i have like an actual planner and i found my 2022 one and one of my goals was finish writing book two and i was like ha you wish <laughs> um but i actually think i will have it written by the end of this year um and it's another story following a british gujarati family also very much set in london um this time it follows like a female protagonist who's older than Nick. she's like in her late 20s early 30s it's closer to my age and again it's about like family secrets and and you know friendship and things like this very similar themes but a very different story very much lighter as well because the things that we lost is in many ways like quite a dark book quite a sad book it's, it's quite a heavy book whereas the next one I think is going to explore a lot of the same themes and have similar characters and that you know they come from the same background but it's going to be a lot lighter and like I say a total fresh Set of characters too, who I'm really enjoying getting to know at the moment. um So, yeah, hopefully at some point in the future, that one will be sitting on a bookshelf alongside my first one. But I have to write it. First.
2: <laughs> well, good luck with the writing process. And I cannot wait to read it because your first novel, which I would urge people to go and check out, is a gorgeous novel. Even though it does deal with dark and sad themes, it is beautifully written. And thank you so much, Jody, for joining me on the podcast today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you.
2: That was Jyoti Patel talking about her contemporary novel, The Things That We Lost, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop and if you can I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or if you've subscribed already it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time!